This is episode number 341. Mastery is a practice, not a destination. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about high performance and well-being, and I'm your host, Sonia. And if you're new around here, I am a world and multi-time national champion in mountain biking, and I still race professionally. I'm a health and mental performance coach, a writer, a mom of two little kids, and I own my own business. And if you're not new around here, welcome. I'm so glad that you're back, and I'm so grateful that you are a part of this awesome community and that we get to learn and grow together. When people talk about well-being, you often will hear a lot about emotions and psychological frameworks, but well-being is also about physical health. And I think a lot of us can also say that physical health relates to mental well-being. The things that we put in our body, the things that we eat, these things all contribute to our physical health. And that's why I want to tell you about Prevenex. Prevenex is a supplement company that has a mission of creating health. I felt another level of energy since I started taking the Prevenix multivitamin, and I've been taking it now for a couple of months. The multivitamin is going to fill your nutrient gaps and needs and give you broad-based antioxidant support to push harder and recover quicker. I even did a deep dive into a lot of the different ingredients, and they have the highest form and the most absorbable form of all of the vitamins and minerals in the multivitamin. I'm also confident in giving my son the children's multivitamin called Supervites. In fact, he asks for it every day. Supervites are chewable and contain optimal forms and amounts of key vitamins, minerals, and antioxidants that support children. I don't know about you, but I remember taking the Flintstone chewable vitamins when I was a kid, and there's a lot of weird ingredients in a lot of children's vitamins, and even sugar being added to children's vitamins. Prevenex Supervites are low in sugar from natural sources, and they are also preservative, artificial additive, and junk-free. They're also soy, dairy, and gluten-free. So if you're wondering what you're giving your kids in those chewable vitamins, look no further and check out Supervites. And in addition to having pharmaceutical-grade supplements, including multivitamin, the Joint Health Plus, Immune Health Plus, and many others, every Prevenex purchase you make will provide a bottle of vitamins to a child in need. When the founder of Prevenex, David Block, learned that 3.1 million children under the age of five die each year due to malnutrition, he decided to make his mission all about helping create health for children. And 45% of these deaths are caused by poor nutrition, not hunger, which means these children are not receiving adequate vitamins, minerals, and nutrients. So when you are supporting Prevenex, you are also supporting children in need. Prevenex also provides a 30-day back money guarantee, so if for some strange reason you don't feel the benefits, you can try it risk-free. So head on over to Prevenex.com, that is P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com, and use the code SONIA15 to get 15% off your first order. There's a lot of excitement going on around here with my parents visiting, and my children both had their birthdays, so my daughter turned one on March 14th, and my son turned three on March 15th, so we've been pretty busy. I also just took the National Board Certification for Health and Wellness Coaching, which is the highest level of certification for coaching, and it was pretty tough. It was a three and a half hour exam and 150 questions. I had to go to Vancouver to take it, and it has the strictest rules. They did a metal detector screening. I wasn't allowed to wear earrings, so I'm looking forward to getting my results in the next eight weeks. I put in a ton of time studying for that exam, and it was such a great review of all of the key elements of coaching, things like active listening, motivational interviewing, 
the trans theoretical model of behavior change, self-efficacy theory, and so much more. If you're interested in becoming one of my clients, I am always taking people at certain intervals. And right now I have space for a couple of people. I do health and wellness coaching, and I also do mental performance coaching. For more, you can go to my website, sonyalooney.com and click how I can help. Or you can send me a message through the contact form. I'd love to talk about working with you and closing the gap from where you are today to where you want to be. Coaching is a partnership and I look forward to hearing from you. If you're enjoying the show, don't forget to hit that subscribe button so that you don't miss future episodes. And if you are finding value in the show, please share the show with your friends and leave us a review. It only takes a couple of seconds, but you have to remember to do it, to go in there and leave a five-star rating. That's something that I have been trying to be more proactive about doing because that helps the show find others as well. Today's solo episode took me three weeks to prepare for. You might have noticed that my solo episodes typically come out the first week of the month. And each week I kept trying to get to a point where I was ready to release it. And I kept reading more and more books and learning more and more things. And this tends to be a problem whenever it comes to these solo episodes that are a deep dive into a topic. But this time I really wanted to make sure that I had a very comprehensive understanding and view of today's topic because mastery is something that we talk about a lot. It's something that we think about a lot. But oftentimes, it's not truly defined in a real way. We just hear about mastery and we hear about pursuing mastery. But what does that actually mean? So first, I'll start with the definition of mastery. And it's not any one definition. I have several definitions that I saw in the literature, in the dictionary, and in some of the books that I've read. So you can decide for yourself what mastery means to you. Mastery is pursuing a goal for its own sake. And that certainly sounds like process, like we talk about a lot on this podcast, Mastery is an endless path of improvement. Mastery is the process and mindset, not an endpoint. Anders Ericsson defines mastery as a path of purposeful and deliberate practice. Robert Greene defines mastery as a form of power and intelligence that represents the high point of human potential involving technical proficiency and social know-how. George Leonard defines mastery as a continual journey and there's no end or perfection of the skill. Rather, the practice is the point in and of itself. Mastery is a long plateau with short bursts of improvement. Oxford Dictionary defines it as a comprehensive knowledge or skill in a subject. Mastery helps you attain new levels of competence. Pursuing mastery is a precursor for flow states. And Dan Pink defines mastery as pain, asymptotic, and a mindset. I have a quote from him to get us started here from Dan Pink from his book Drive. Mastery is a mindset. It requires the capacity to see your abilities not as finite, but as infinitely improvable. Mastery is a pain. It demands effort, grit, and deliberate practice. And mastery is an asymptote. It's impossible to fully realize, which makes it simultaneously frustrating and alluring. So let's take a second and think if some of those things that I just said from all the books and literature that I read have changed how you view mastery already. I think a lot of us think that mastery is an endpoint. Someone becomes a master. But most of the things that I read say that no, there is no endpoint in mastery. And it gets harder and harder the better you get at something. But because of that asymptotic relationship that you might remember from algebra, where a curve is steep and then as it approaches a number or a limit, it starts flattening out, never truly touching that limit, mastery gets harder the better you get. Or rather, I should say staying on the path to mastery gets harder, the better that you get because you don't see those bursts of improvement as often. 
Whenever I started thinking about everything that I learned about mastery, it seemed to have qualities of curiosity, humility, commitment to exploration, patience, and transcendence, coloring what that word means. I saw common themes in the academic literature and in several books regarding mastery. And today, I'll talk about how mastery relates to things like well-being, flow, motivation, self-esteem, and mindset. And those are topics I've talked about a lot on this podcast, but I've never talked about them with mastery being the umbrella covering them all. You may have also heard of Malcolm Gladwell's interpretation of the 10,000 hour rule in his book, Outliers, and we'll debunk that myth in a bit. And that was also something new that I learned. I'll also tell you about some key takeaways from books that focus on mastery, and I'll put that book list in the show notes if it's of interest to you. I've shared some of these books with some friends and some clients, and they have been truly impactful in their lives. So welcome to the ride, and I'm excited to broaden the conversation on mastery. And if you learned something new today, or maybe you disagree with something, or you have something to add to the conversation, I am encouraging all of that feedback. So make sure that you share it on social media or send me a DM at Sonia Looney on Instagram, or even just shoot me a message through my website. I'd love to hear from you, and I'm always open to new ideas. So you can pursue new levels of mastery throughout your life across different domains. You can even pursue mastery without being very good at the task that you're doing. Pursuing mastery is choosing a path of doing an activity for the sake of the activity itself, not as a means to get something. However, you mainly attain things or recognition as a marker of your continued expertise. So think about something that you're really passionate about and that you've worked towards. You probably have gotten some sort of recognition from that thing. I think about cycling is something that <laughs> everything comes back to cycling, but that's something that I've done in my life. And over time, I have gotten recognition and gotten things from it. And it's interesting, some of the research on motivation shows that actually getting rewarded for things can mess up your motivation. Some of the literature about mastery makes it sound like you can only pursue one thing in your life, but I disagree with that. I think that you can be a musician and maybe you're a really bad musician like me, but you can still be pursuing mastery every time you sit down to the piano or pick up a guitar. That doesn't mean that you have to be a virtuoso or that you even have to be able to play all the scales, but as long as you have wise effort and deliberate practice as you're trying to improve, no matter how often you're showing up to improve at the thing, you're on the path to mastery. Or maybe mastery is something you've dedicated your entire life to. For me, cycling is a sport, endurance sports. I've been doing it for 20 years. And that is something that is a big part of my life. So you can have different parts of your life dedicated to mastery. Of all the books, George Leonard's book called Mastery was the one that resonated most with me. He discusses mastery as an almost goalless process without an endpoint. And that might sound a little bit depressing to not have a goal because sometimes we want to achieve a goal so that we can feel a certain way. As I've spent the last 20 years committed to endurance sports and mountain biking, I have experienced this process. In the beginning, you experience rapid improvement. And over time, you reach a plateau. And the more proficient you become at something, the longer you are on that plateau. That plateau can be mundane and endless. And many people quit because they stop seeing improvement or they become impatient. The plateau is frustrating and mundane, and over time, reaching for 1% improvement or marginal gain takes a lot of time and practice. And then you suddenly experience short spurts of improvement followed by another long plateau. And that is something that is talked about a lot in George Leonard's book, this long plateau and these short spurts of improvement. Some people think of that plateau as the end of a path. And certainly as Dan Pink in his book Drive points out, Mastery does pursue an asymptote, as I mentioned earlier. Mastery will always hover just beyond your grasp. 
And again, that might sound a little bit depressing, but at the same time, that might be really freeing to you to think, wow, I am never going to quote arrive. This is always something I will work towards my entire life. I heard a quote on the Rich Roll podcast. He was talking with a guest and a guest said this, and unfortunately, I don't remember who said it, but they said, don't fear work without an end. And I think that a lot of times we do fear work without an end. And I, I think that that's why sometimes we are looking at retirement as this wonderful thing because our work will end. But mastery is about having work without an end and being okay with that. I also started considering a different idea that maybe mastery isn't about continuous commitment to improvement. If you're doing an activity for the sake of the activity itself, that is actually a different concept than saying, I'm going to improve at an activity for the sake of improvement itself. So there's a bit of a distinction there. Doing the activity for the sake of the activity itself versus improving an activity for the sake of improvement itself. If you're on a long plateau without seeing improvement, you may stop. Or as you age or your situation changes, you may no longer be able to improve in the same way that you once were. This is something that I'm experiencing as a parent of two little kids. And I'm currently sick right now. I'm not able to train for this big race I'm doing in North Carolina next month. This is a really key time to be training. So that's an example of that. My process looks different than it used to. And I have to have different expectations around that. The sake of activity is not necessarily about improvement. So I think that this is an important epiphany. Oftentimes people think setbacks are bumping them off the path to their goals when really setbacks are the path. Like getting sick right now, that's a setback, but it doesn't mean that I'm off my path. It's how I view setbacks as part of the process where I can glean insight that can propel me forward. The idea that mastery is not necessarily about improvement also made me think of something that I heard Stephen Kotler say on the Finding Mastery podcast way back in 2019. And I'll actually refer to this again later. But he said, the neurotransmitter dopamine is a big part of goal setting or wanting to get something. As you anticipate getting something, dopamine levels increase to drive your motivation. Kotler said, what if people are chasing dopamine instead of mastery? What if they are chasing the dopamine hit of mastery instead of the task itself? So chasing improvement can be analogous to chasing dopamine. So it becomes about dopamine and not about the activity. So this brings me to my first main topic, goal setting and mastery. Some people believe that mastery is the outcome of years of goal setting. But as you just heard, mastery is often defined as an asymptote. You can approach mastery and the more competent you become, the harder it is to see measurable improvement. Over time, with the right process and practices in place, you become more skilled. So what does goal setting have to do with mastery? For starters, both can be defined as a process, as something, doing something for the sake of the thing itself, as I've said a few times now. Goals create direction and help you assess purposeful and deliberate practice, pausing to assess your progress. And again, a lot, a lot of times we forget to pause and assess our progress. And that's a really important part of feeling successful. And goals are often accelerated. The process of goals are often accelerated with the aid of a coach, a teacher, or a mentor. In short, mastery is a never-ending quest for process-based goals. And I linked up a quick refresher to the ultimate guide to goal setting that I posted a while back. The outcomes of these goals may be data points on the growth curve, and the goals also define who you are and what you stand for. So process goals and pursuing mastery are closely linked. I'd be remiss to talk about goal setting without mentioning dopamine, the molecule of more. So to continue on what I just said, dopamine is a neurotransmitter and is an instrumental part of goal setting and the anticipation of getting something. As you anticipate getting something, dopamine levels increase to drive your motivation. Just like chasing outcomes, we can be prone to chasing dopamine. We set more and more goals, wanting to finally feel like we are enough. 
but dopamine will not do that for you. And this is something that I definitely can relate with setting more goals. If I achieve more, then I'll be more, but that's not the case. You'll always be chasing because that's what dopamine does. So chasing dopamine instead of mastery would manifest as doing tasks or processes that don't incorporate deliberate practice. Dopamine can be impacted by focusing on the outcomes and extrinsic motivators. It is said that dopamine is the chemical of intrinsic motivation, but different areas of the brain are actually impacted by activities you do. And your brain is impacted whether you get a intermittent reward, whether you get a reward every time, or whether you get no reward at all. So you can see extrinsic motivation and rewards being tied into this. And I included a link if you are interested to see what areas of the brain light up whenever this happens. But it's not as simple as dopamine is the molecule for intrinsic motivation because dopamine levels can increase in different areas of the brain depending on whether this is an extrinsic or an intrinsic reward. An example would be going out and doing more intervals when you should be resting or working on technical riding because doing intervals makes you feel more validated. But maybe this isn't the best use of your training time for growth. Of course, many of us have done this. We have trained too hard. Whenever a lot of us are new athletes, we go out and we ride super hard every single ride because we think that that's what we need to do. And that might make us feel like we're enough. Chasing dopamine instead of mastery could also be avoiding the mundane tasks of mastery, like sitting down to write a long essay or even fold laundry by doing other things. That example may be a bit of a stretch, but my point is that you can chase things to have a certain feeling without doing an activity for mastery. When dopamine goals, just manageable challenges, and the idea of mastery line up, then you're golden. And we'll talk about that more in a little bit. Effective goal setting and motivation are also linked to the type of motivation that you are chasing. You may have heard of extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation or even autonomous versus control motivation. Control motivation is doing something because someone else told you to, whereas autonomous motivation is about having a sense of agency and choice. And that is one of the key elements of self-determination theory and for having intrinsic motivation. But what if you don't know what goal to set or what to focus on to have some sense of mastery? Finding your purpose or activities that you want to pursue can be a whole other challenge. DC and Ryan, the researchers of self-determination theory, say that autonomous motivation occurs in an environment where our interests and enjoyment align with our core values and beliefs. So when we look at the pursuit of mastery, I would think that having your core values and beliefs be closely associated to the activity you want to engage in be an important part of choosing what to master if you are unsure about where you want to go next with your course of mastery. So if you're trying to find what activities you want to focus on, consider your beliefs and values. Robert Emmons goes deep in his book talking about how to find what we should master, suggesting that we look at our childhood. He also suggests culture and even our parents steer us off the path of mastery for that thing that we were born to do, and that it's never too late. Personally, I associated with being an athlete when I was in elementary school. I wanted to be a pro soccer player, and later I wanted to be a pro tennis player. I just wanted to be a pro athlete. And I also thought about being a professional musician as I played flute with a mastery type interest for six years, but that didn't seem practical. So I did my bachelor's and master's degree in electrical engineering. There was something inside me that could not accept that career that I chose. I knew it wasn't my calling and the drive to be a professional athlete and to want to help others became so prominent that I had to pursue it. And at the time, the sport that I was doing was mountain biking. The activities you do for mastery do not need to be your career, but If you are ignoring them because it seems too hard to start or the expectations of how you should be are too heavy, 
then you're missing out on an important part of life and well-being. And as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, mastery can be something you do in a lot of different areas. It doesn't have to be one solitary focus at the expense of everything else. So back to motivation. In Drive, Dan Pink suggests that intrinsic motivation is linked to autonomy, mastery, and purpose, which differs a little bit from self-determination theory that focuses on autonomy, competence, and relatedness. I think developing levels of competence is part of mastery, and it feels good to feel confident and competent in an area. When it comes to mastery, it made me think of the pandemic. There were no start lines for athletes. Training truly became about doing a sport for the sake of the sport itself, not to get to a start line or a finish line or to have any accolades attached to your name. This idea has been especially prominent in my life because due to two pregnancies and a pandemic in the middle, I didn't see a start line for three and a half years. And a big part of my identity was being a racer and traveling the world. But I never stopped being dedicated to my craft. And that told me that I was truly pursuing mastery and I could do it without, without improving because when you're pregnant, it's hard to improve and do it without a start line. So mastery isn't about getting a thing, it's about doing a thing. And whenever I wrote that simple sentence, I realized that summarized a lot of what I just said so well. Mastery isn't about getting a thing, it's about doing a thing. And here's a quote, an old Zen saying, it says, before enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. After enlightenment, chop wood and carry water. So what about that 10,000 hour rule that we were just talking about with Malcolm Gladwell and his book, Outliers? Do you become a master at something if you spend 10,000 hours doing it? Many people have heard of this, but it turns out that the 10,000-hour rule was taken a bit out of context in Malcolm Gladwell's book. Gladwell was actually referring to Anders Ericsson's research. In an interview, Ericsson stated that, I would argue that the key thing that people have misinterpreted is that it's not just a matter of accumulating hours. If you're doing your job and you're just doing more and more of the same, you're not actually going to get better. There's a lot of research to really prove that. He continued to say, with the musicians, they were working with their teachers who constantly prodded them to try to learn new things. In the time that they were spending alone, they were really trying to push the boundaries so they would gradually improve their performance while they were at the music academy. This is the kind of argument that we're making. Just working harder or working more does not seem to be associated with high levels of performance. Rather, if you're working with a teacher or a mentor who has attained this high level of performance, That individual can help you now design the kind of training activities that they may have engaged in in order to reach that higher level of performance. Of course, this idea makes sense when it comes to athletic training or training for any skill. It's about quality over quantity, and quality can be impacted by mentorship and coaching. Erickson emphasizes the need for deliberate practice and purposeful practice, and those are his words. The deliberate practice encompasses focus with a specific goal or purpose. The person would receive feedback from a teacher or a coach and is pushed outside his or her comfort zone, and the learner creatively works throughout plateaus. Purposeful practice means that you have a more defined process with an expert in the field and under the guidance of an experienced mentor who helps guide the process. He says, deliberate practice is purposeful practice that knows where it is going and how to get there. A meta-analysis by Wang and Zorik examined the theory of deliberate practice. Their findings stated that fundamentally, the theory of deliberate practice posits that development of expertise requires incorporating a self-reflective feedback loop into the skill delivery or development process, rather than simply performing a task repetitively until it is mastered. To achieve maximal efficiency, time for self-reflection and instantaneous feedback are vital for allowing the learner to self-adjust and make improvements for engaging in the next task. 
Mastery is thus achieved through repeated cycles of focused practice and self-editing, with each cycle emphasizing one or more aspects of a desired skill. This makes me think about technical writing. This is how I approach technical writing. I have coaching, but I also do it on my own and I take videos and it is a self-reflective process to always continue getting better. And taking the time to reflect, as I mentioned earlier, is sometimes something that we don't do because we're busy or we just forget to do it. So anything that you're working towards, I encourage you to spend time each week looking back at your process and look at what was successful and what needs a little bit of improvement. And when needed, get a coach or get some help. So coming back to deliberate and purposeful practice, Dan Pink talks about the importance of having autotelic experiences that consist of clear goals, immediate feedback, and challenges well-matched to our abilities. So autotelic means having an end or purpose in itself, which is basically the definition of mastery. So that should give you some insight onto what the process of mastery looks like. And if you want to hear more or learn more, check out Anders Ericsson's book, Peak. So quick summary, we've talked about the motivation and goal setting around mastery. And we've also talked about what practice looks like. What is a good practice of mastery on the path? What does that involve? If you've heard the word flow, chances are you've heard the name Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi. He identified proximal conditions to flow or flow triggers in his research. And just as a side note, I put a link to flow triggers and his research in the show notes. So that is a set of conditions when universally met will lead to more flow. A precursor to flow states is matching just manageable challenges with skill level. And according to Stephen Kotler in his book, The Rise of Superman, he identified five powerful intrinsic drivers that lead to flow. They're curiosity, passion, purpose, autonomy, and mastery. So some of those you've already heard me talk about in this podcast. And coming back to dopamine, Kotler argues that dopamine is linked to increasing the first four intrinsic drivers, but not to mastery. Focusing on those first four intrinsic drivers, curiosity, passion, purpose, and autonomy drive dopamine, but Csikszentmihalyi and Kotler imply that in order for dopamine to be part of the feeling of mastery, a set of conditions must be met. And those conditions involve a challenge skills balance to support dopamine and norepinephrine to create more focus. In other words, you want just manageable challenges to meet your skill level. And this balance is only 4%. So a lot of times we think we got to do something really hard or just write off that drop whenever it seems impossible to do. But really to improve and to find a sense of flow, you only need to do something that's about 4% out of your reach. And that's also important for not getting hurt. Collar says that we essentially are getting our biology to work for us by creating conditions for mastery and thereby flow state. Flow is defined as a state in which people are so involved in an activity that nothing else seems to matter. The experience is so enjoyable that people will continue to do it even at great cost for the sheer sake of doing it. And I don't necessarily agree that that is a healthy relationship with flow. I think that that can become borderline obsessive and there are times where our passions can get out of line and come at the expense of everything else. And that brings me to mastery and well-being theory. If you've heard of well-being theory, then you've probably heard of the acronym PERMA and Martin Seligman. When these elements are focused on, people live a flourishing and fulfilled life. So I'll tell you what the acronym means really quick. P is for positive emotions. E is for engagement. R is for relationships. M is for meaning. And A is for accomplishment and achievement. Mastery is linked to engagement, the E in PERMA. And engagement is linked to flow state. In Seligman's well-being theory, the words engagement and flow are almost used interchangeably and require concentration. While in a deeply concentrated or flow state, the atmosphere of the mind isn't about positive or negative thoughts, but is often described as no mind. There are no thoughts. 
Mastery, engagement, and flow states can be independent of comparison too. That was something I started thinking about of being in these states. Are you comparing to other people? And sure, when saying one person is a master of something, there is underlying comparison involved. A master compared to what? But mastery as a process isn't about how you stack up compared to somebody else. You may compare it to previous versions of yourself, but mastery can even be narrowed down to a shorter time, pr- time frame if you are comparing to yourself. Mastery is about the present moment and engagement is about being in the moment. Seligman says that engagement is about being one with the music. Uh, and in the PERMA model, both engagement and achievement are pursued for their own sake. I would argue that engagement produces mastery. And pursuing mastery may also soften the blow of the arrival fallacy, which I've written about when it's linked in the show notes. If you've ever thought, I'll be happy when I get X, that is the arrival fallacy. Mastery is about the work or activity you are doing today, not what you'll get when you become a master or how happy you'll be in the future. I was also thinking about how mastery and expectations are related. And if you listen to my last solo episode, it was all about the paradox of expectations. Expecting ourselves to improve at a certain rate can be discouraging when we are on a long plateau. And George Leonard posits that we spend more of our time on the long plateau than not. So what are expectations in line with pursuing mastery? I'm not really sure. But mastery and self-esteem are actually linked. So self-esteem can be tricky when we tie it to achievements or even to our competence, especially if we feel competent relative to someone else. This can be a problem in competition if it's viewed as a zero-sum game. And you can read more or listen more about self-esteem and competition because I did that solo episode two months ago about rethinking competition. Watching a competition is a great spot to see impressive displays of mastery, but if you're the competitor, how you view competence and the practice of your craft can be tainted by competition. An example would be someone starts out in a sport and progresses, but then they dope. They do performance-enhancing drugs to improve their performance. Doping is not on the path to mastery, and viewing competence based on outcomes or money takes someone off the path to mastery, and they feel pressure to cheat or to take shortcuts. George Leonard says, winning graciously and losing with equal grace are the marks of a master. So let's talk about healthy self-esteem. Research from Tafarodi and Swan in 1995 states, a healthy self-esteem has two key elements, self-worth and self-efficacy. In other words, self-worth is about how you view yourself as a person based on values, morals, passions, and beliefs. And self-efficacy is a confidence to execute a skill based on past successes or positive experiences. And self-efficacy is something that I talk about a lot in the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy, and you can find that on my website. But the more you do, the more you believe you can do. Self-efficacy is related to progress. When it comes to mastery, psychologist Scott Barry Kaufman says that the more successful you are at making progress toward your goals, the more confident you feel, and the two spiral upward toward a stable sense of mastery. In his book, Transcend, he discusses self-esteem as having components of self-worth and mastery, and that was derived from the research that I just quoted. So pursuing mastery wisely can be the key to having a healthy self-esteem since it can be viewed as one of the elements of a healthy self-esteem. That said, I don't think pursuing mastery even means you have to be good at something. And I said that in the beginning, and that might come as a surprise. And that came as a surprise to me as I was working along this path. It means you enjoy an activity and are engaging in your curiosity to learn more. If self-esteem is based on self-worth and mastery, then autonomy comes into play. In a sense, self-esteem is linked to a sense of control. So you can control your actions and your perception of your thoughts. You can control the effort you put in to gain self-efficacy. You can control how you view your process and the steps that you make to improve upon that process. And you can engage in wise effort on the path to mastery. And that is all linked to autonomy. 
In the Buddhist tradition, wise effort or the purposeful dedication of our energy is an essential part of the spiritual path. And that is a quote by Tara Brock. This quote led me down another thought train that I'll address another day because this podcast is already pretty comprehensive, but it was about the difference between mastery of self and mastery of craft. And I think that those can be two separate things. I'll briefly touch on mastery of self just by talking about mastery as a mindset. But as a quick little tease, I think that mastery of self comes down to things like self-regulation and emotional intelligence and so much more. Okay, so mastery is a mindset. The mindset of mastery is one of a willingness to try and fail, the patience to endure long plateaus, the confidence to be humbled, and the desire to work hard. It sounds a lot like a growth mindset, doesn't it? The mastery mindset requires curiosity and creativity to continue to innovate and improve. The mastery mindset is related to mastery of self, but it isn't the only element of mastery of self. Something that I thought was super interesting in several of the books that I've read about mastery is that prodigies are discussed and prodigies often do not have the mastery mindset because their talent never required them to work as hard. In George Leonard's book, he refers to a story from the beginner's mind by Zen master Shunryu Suzuki. And the script, I'm going to just read it to you. He says, in our scriptures, it is said that there are four kinds of horses, excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The best horse will run slow and fast, right and left at the driver's will before it sees the shadow of the whip. The second best will run as well as the first one just before the whip reaches its skin. And the third one will run when it feels pain on its body. The fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn to run. When we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. If it is impossible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. But this is a mistake, Master Suzuki says. When you learn too easily, you're tempted to not work hard, not to penetrate the marrow of the practice. And Suzuki says the best horse may be the worst horse because it never has to struggle. I thought that was so powerful, that struggle is such an important part of mastery and that being, quote, talented is a disservice to the pursuit of mastery if you never learn how to struggle or how to learn. Also, how you view failure is a key to the mastery mindset. Early talents who lost motivation due to a fixed mindset and focusing on too much on talent never learn to persist and improve upon process. A mastery mindset means you have to be willing to suck, even publicly. A mastery mindset is a beginner's mind. One of the challenges are we improve and become proficient at our craft, and then we may start glossing over individual steps and taking shortcuts. I know that I've certainly done this, and I try to remind myself to step back and to stop taking shortcuts. It's not about hacks. It's not about skipping over the fundamentals. It's about returning to them repeatedly. Getting better can be more about our relationship to our actions instead of an upward trajectory of improvement. This is something I think about a lot when people ask me about aging and what happens when you start declining in certain ways that come with age. Or maybe your circumstances have changed, as I've mentioned, and you can't practice in the same way that you once were. This was another epiphany moment while doing this research. In the book, The Passion Paradox, authors Brad Stolberg and Steve Magnus write, in an ironic twist, adhering to the goal of getting better can be especially powerful when it seems that you are destined to get worse. That's because in the grand scheme of things, better is less about objective results and more about the evolution of your relationship with your passion. For many of the most passionate people, getting better is about becoming stronger, kinder, and wiser. Better is about how the practice of your passion transforms you as a person. That was amazing. And that's because 
we often think it has to be about improvement and about getting better without defining what better actually means. So this is a different definition of better that can inform us along our journey. It also addresses to have patience on the long plateau, especially if it seems like you won't ever be getting off of it and how you can find meaning when you're on that long plateau. A stronger, kinder, wiser person can also correlate to self-worth and therefore self-esteem and well-being. And here's a great quote by James Clear, who I'm sure that you've heard of. Mastery requires both impatience and patience. The impatience to have a bias toward action, to not waste time, and to work with a sense of urgency each day. The patience to delay gratification, to wait for your actions to accumulate, and to trust the process. I think that's a great place to leave it. And to sum it up for you, mastery is about a deliberate and purposeful process. It's about self-reflection. It's about wise effort and mastering both your craft and yourself. Mastery is about pursuing an activity for the sake of an activity itself, enduring and expecting the monotony of the long plateau, and isn't only about getting better. It's about defining what better means to you. It's about passion, flow states, engagement, and connecting to intrinsic motivation. I hope you had a lot of new epiphanies as I did when learning about mastery and that you can start applying these to your own life. And if you are interested in learning more, you can subscribe to my weekly newsletter where I write an article doing a deep dive into topics such as these. This is also a huge part of my coaching practice. So if you're interested in working with me as a client, go to sanyalooney.com and use the contact form to get in touch. Big thanks to our podcast sponsor, Prevenex, creating health for everybody. Make sure you check out their website at prevenex.com for the highest quality supplements. And as always, I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day. We'll see you right back here next week.